Thank you. We'll hear God's word from 1 Peter 1 verse 10 to 12 today. So if you've got your Bible, you can open it there. Let me just get my own Bible as well. 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 12. And you might be a little bit discouraged. You'll say, hang on. I thought we we're getting some speed here. Last week we did at least seven verses. Now we're back to two verses. It's going to take forever to get through it. But you'll see as we get into these verses... Uh, there is so much to learn from it uh, that we could take a lot longer. So let us hear God's word together. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that is a complicated sentence, I'll admit that. It's partly complicated because I, uh, it's, it's the end of a very long sentence in the Greek uh, that we have studied last week. Uh, and it started with that first line in verse 3 where Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and there we found in, the first, uh, in that first line uh, that Peter speaks in verse 3, we find that rare jewel in the English language, called the exclamation mark, the exclamation mark. Uh, Peter, as he writes his letter, is so full of joy that he starts his opening line with, blessed are the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what we said last week is, in order to get a joy that is unshakable, we need to turn and look to Christ in faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ that gives us the joy that is unshakable. What aspect of faith? Particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Looking in faith at the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a joy that is unshakable. And, and, and how can we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Only if we have been born again in order to see Christ as resurrected. Can we have the unshakable joy that Peter speaks of? He ends the section we looked at last week to say, that we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible. A joy that is inexpressible. So, so here's what Peter is doing. He is giving us a landscape of God's blessings. He's taking us up onto a hill and he says, look at everything that you have. The rebirth, the rebirth in order to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the blessings that you have now. In light of these blessings... Go endear your trials with joy. In fact, take your blessings and put them on as glasses, as lenses through which you look at your trials. Look at your trials through the blessings that you have in Christ. That's the basic thing that Peter is doing. And today, he reminds us that we are very privileged as New Testament believers. Because the blessings that we have and that we can see are far richer than the blessings that they saw in the Old Testament. We are much more privileged. And it, of course, raises a responsibility. We have, given, we have been given much. 
we have received much, therefore much will be uh, desired of us. And so I'm going to speak uh, along three points today. The first point is by far the largest. I should have broken this one down into three points. Uh, but the first point that I'll speak on is this, the shape of the Christian life. The shape of the Christian life. And uh, I'd like you to turn back to the passage we've just read. And I'm going to read uh, it again. And I'm going to draw attention to the shape of the Christian life. It says there, concerning the side about the grace that was to be, be yours, search and inquire carefully. So if we ask the question, what does this tell us about the shape of the Christian life? It tells us about a destination, and that destination being grace that was to be ours. So if you're a Christian, it tells us that there is something that is yours, and the prophet saw it in the Old Testament, and it is grace that is to be ours. That's the one aspect of the shape of the Christian life. He said these prophets, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring. What did they inquire? They inquire about the who, what person, and the when, what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ, that's the what of the gospel, will take place. So the shape of the Christian life looks a bit like this. There is grace in our future. And that grace has as its foundation the word of the prophets in the past that knew the what of the gospel, the predict, uh, predicted the sufferings and glories of Christ, but didn't know the who and the when. Didn't know that it would be Jesus or when it will take place. Those two things they didn't know, but they knew the what. And the shape of the Christian life is now defined by these three questions. The, the who, the when, and the what. And I know you might be a little bit confused. Let me take you slightly deeper and this might become clearer to you now. Let's just look at the what for a moment. Inquiring what person, in, in, in the, uh, the inquiring what person, the who, or what time, the Spirit of Christ in there was indicating, when he predicted the what, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And there's two things I want to talk, talk to you about that at the moment. Note both the order of those two words, the sufferings and the subsequent glories. It's suffering, then glory. And then note the plurality. It is not suffering, it is not glory. It is sufferings, it is glory. And so let's first talk about the what of the gospel that shapes the Christian life, that starts with suffering, that then leads to glory. And I can start by saying that the shape of the Christian life is not natural. If suffering precedes glory, it's not natural. And we saw that in Peter himself. The Peter that is speaking to us is the same Peter that when Jesus told him that he will suffer in Jerusalem and be tried there by sinful men and die and then be raised to life, he heard Jesus say that and he said, no, stop, 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 stop. We're not going to Jerusalem. Because Peter responded against the order of these events. He said, no, 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 no. Suffering cannot precede glory. We've got to stop. Glory now. You're popular. You've got a crowd. We're building something here. Don't go and ruin it by going suffering in, in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. So Peter responded like that. He responded like that the evening that Jesus was arrested. He pulled out his sword. He wanted to stop the suffering of Jesus being arrested so that he's crucified. 
and he defended the suffering that is to come. It is instinctive, it is natural to resist suffering which leads to glory. And that's what makes what Jesus does even more astonishing. He comes and he does that which is wholly unnatural to us. You see, Jesus knows what we're only learning and what what we'll learn over the course of our Christian lives is that the way up is down. It is through suffering that glory is attained. And Jesus knew this. And so Jesus, well, he went to the cross. Now, before we get into that, let's talk about the plurality. That's the order of it. The shape of the Christian life is suffering leads to glory. Let's talk about the plurality. You'd see that it says sufferings and subsequent glories. And yeah, we can delve into our own response to this. You see, I've come across this in your lives and in my own, that when I've suffered one singular, I'm now disappointed if glory isn't on the horizon. Well, I've suffered so much already. So now I'm looking for the glory that will follow. And if it's not coming, there's great disappointment that follows. Even the words, but it's unfair. It's not right. But I've suffered so much. Or we look at the lives of friends in in the faith and we say, but they suffered so much. When will the glory come? But, But what we forget is that even in 1 Peter, he reminds us that Christ's suffering was not singular, plural. You read the systematic theologies and you discover that whenever they talk about Christ's suffering and Christ's glory, they refer mostly to singular events. Christ's suffering, the crucifixion. Christ's glory is resurrection. But the reality is Christ's sufferings began at Christmas. Christ's sufferings began with that very romantic Christmas card we often see during the Christmas season, of a, of a young couple with a newborn baby in the cozy manger amongst the animals, forgetting that this is the king of the universe that is received into this world by a husband and wife that are on the run, that are destitute, and are amongst animals because they have nowhere else to stay. Soon after Jesus' birth, they'll be on the run from a, a, a madman who wants to destroy all children under two years old, all boys under children two years old. So Jesus' suffering, although it climaxed on the cross, it started with the incarnation. It, it continued throughout his life, growing up in that backwater place called Nazareth. And then once he's grown up a little bit, uh, he was immediately openly questioned for his authority. Where does this come from? He was publicly accused of working with demons, Belzebub. He was blatantly ridiculed and finally betrayed, arrested, tried, and killed by horrible torture. His sufferings was indeed plural, not singular. And Christians should, for that reason, not expect any less. You see, the pattern is sufferings to glory. His sufferings to his glory. His sufferings to his glory. And, and at this point, you've got to hold on to me, hold on to my thinking because it's going to get slightly more complex. So the basic pattern is suffering leads to glory. Jesus is the pattern. His sufferings, plural, leads to his glories, plural. And here's the way that we begin to think wrongly about these things. We think about our suffering and our glory. 
And we disconnect our suffering and our glory from Christ's suffering and Christ's glory. And, and when we do this, uh, we will suffer tremendously because we will always be unsure uh, about our status in the Lord. We will always lack boldness and confidence in the Lord. Uh, and so let me try and unpack and bring these two closer to you. The basic pattern of the Christian life is suffering that leads to glory, but not our suffering that leads to our glory, but Christ's suffering that leads to Christ's glory. We share in His suffering, and therefore we share in His glory. To say it very blatantly, if my suffering in this world were to purchase glory in the world to come, no matter how much I suffer in this world, it will at most be able to only purchase two days' worth of glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Our sufferings will never go as deep as Christ's sufferings went that purchased for us eternity of glory with God. That's just to say, say it slightly starkly. So let me take your gaze away from yourself and from your own sufferings and from your own expectations to have glory that will match with your sufferings and let your, your, your gaze go to Christ and His sufferings with his subsequent glories. You see, this is the way it works. It's in Deuteronomy 30 that we come across this the first time. It is where we are told, God the Father says, that if we are, it's an if-then statement, it's in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 to 6, that's what I'll talk about now. Take a key, there's a key on the table there. If we think for a moment about this if-then statement. If, Deuteronomy 30 says, and it's not on the screen, and you might have to find it on there. If we return to the Lord, you and your children, and obey His voice and all that He commands you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then, so if-then, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. So if we take it to the basic Christian life, the peculiar suffering of repentance and returning to the Lord will be matched by the glory of his restoration. And so this is what Israel was told in the Old Testament. They were told to return to the Lord with all their heart, with all their soul. Then the glories will come. Then God will restore your fortunes and have compassion in you. And listen to the blessings that he rolls out. Restore uh, compassion on you. will gather you again from the uttermost parts of heaven. Uh, from there, the Lord your God will gather you, and from there, He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Think, okay, this is amazing. Return to the Lord with all your heart, Israel. Return to, your, to the Lord with all your heart and with your soul. And, and your obedience, your repentance will be the key that you turn in the lock of God's blessings. And as you open the door, what will come to you? Well, this is what will come to you. Uh, the Lord will gather you in. He will have compassion on you. He will restore you. He will give you land and he will give you prosperity. So come on, Israel. Turn the key. Put your repentance. Put your obedience in the lock and turn it whole Old Testament is just a record of Israel struggling with the key because they can never return to the Lord with all their hearts and with all their souls. And therefore they can never unlock the blessings that are theirs in the new covenant. The blessings of, uh, of being gathered in, of, uh, of restoration, of compassion, of a land and of, uh, and of prosperity. You see, when Jesus comes, this is exactly what he does. He comes, and it's John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, 
that remarks when Jesus comes to him and says, you have to baptize me. And John says, I, my baptism is a baptism of repentance. I should not baptize you. You should baptize me. And Jesus' response is, no, this we need to do to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Christ is the true Israel. And Christ's return to the Lord, which he never left. Christ's repentance, which he never does because he never did sin. Christ's return with all his heart and all his soul, which you could see throughout his life, was our return to the Lord. Christ is Israel who puts the key into the lock of God's blessings and his obedience turns it and unlocks the door of all the blessings that now comes because of it. You see, the basic shape of the Christian life is not my suffering leading to my glories, but it is Christ's suffering leading to Christ's glories and I get to share in his sufferings and therefore get to share in his glories. And you know the most preeminent gift of the glories that he gives us? Is the one that Peter referenced in this passage. It's the gift of rebirth. Without, without the suffering servant turning into the key of God's promises, his obedience, he would never have purchased for us the Holy Spirit that would do what Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 says. And this is what we needed all along. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. See, if you're able to repent today, if you're able to confess Jesus as your Lord, if there's any notion in your heart that you look away from yourself and you look to the one who was obedient on your behalf, it is only because Christ has done all of this before you. He's opened the door of God's blessings and one of the chief blessings that's come out of it is the Holy Spirit that's come into our hearts and cut us to the heart to enable us to repent. You see, there's only one type of Christian in the universe and it's one that's been born again. It's one whose heart has been circumcised by the Lord. It is one whose heart has been cut and enabled to repent. That is why there's nothing like an unrepented Christian. You cannot be a Christian if you do not bear the fruit of repentance. Now Peter is reminding us that this is the shape of the Christian life. Christ's sufferings leading to Christ's glories. And here is the health warning. And I told you the first point is the longest, the other two is short. But this is where it gets difficult. In first century Rome, to be associated with Jesus led to suffering. So much so that the Apostle Peter had to say, you're going to suffer in first century Rome because you're following Jesus. You're sharing in his suffering. But remember the glories that is his that is now yours. Remember what is to come. And as your pastor in 21st century London, I'm saying, you're going to suffer for your association with Jesus Christ. But remember the glories, his glories that you will get to share in the, in the time to come. But you will suffer for your association with Jesus Christ. And this is, this is nothing that should surprise you, but I think it needs to be addressed head on. The culture is no longer Christian. That's, that's left long ago. The culture used to be, up to about two years ago in my view, neutral. The zeitgeist that we're in. Just let churches just stay on the, under the radar. Let them be under the radar with their views on various things. Let them just, you know, if we don't make a noise, no noise is made about us. But unfortunately, silence is no longer offered as an option by the culture that we're in 
the times have changed and the culture that we're in is now actively against the Christian ethic, the Christian gospel and the Christian lordship of Jesus. You will suffer because of your association with Jesus. But keep your eyes on the glories, his glories that you will get to share in for eternity. I'm saying that with fear and trepidation because I have four young children that has to grow up in the culture that we're in. And as adults, many of us will have to fend for ourselves. But the apostle is reminding us that you are not fending for yourself. Because he told us last week that our faith is holding uh, the, the promise securely for us in heaven where it will never fade, spoil or perish. It is safe what is ours in the future. But in this world, unfortunately, nothing is going to be safe. And we will face this peculiar suffering of being associated with Jesus Christ. Last two points. In spite of all of this, we are incredibly privileged as New Testament Christians. And then I'll talk about what to do with this privilege as my closing point. But we are incredibly privileged as New Testament believers. You saw what the passage said that uh, the, angel, uh, the, 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 the prophets, well, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when the predicted sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories will take place. But then he carries on in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you. You, you see, we have received things that's been announced to us. We have been given the, the who, Jesus, the when, 2,000 years ago, the what, his sufferings and his glories. We have been giving it to, given it to us in a handy, carry-around-anywhere format that we can put in a bag and can read at any point in time. We have no Bible poverty in our culture. We have been given all the revelation that we need in order to see the picture from God's perspective. So we are incredibly privileged. We're incredibly privileged. And not only that, the prophets got persecuted for the little that they saw. They couldn't see everything perfectly, but they knew there is grace to come. And they were telling their cultures that there is grace to come. But they couldn't say who it was going to be by and when it's going to be. But they knew it was coming. Elijah had to flee from Jezebel. Jezebel was the king that wanted to destroy him at the time for his testimony. Jeremiah had to flee. He said, yet all of them curse me, the culture that he's in, as he's preaching the gospel of the grace that is to come. It is Jesus that summarizes it like this. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. You see, they killed the prophets that could not even see perfectly. We are not being killed for the perfect picture that we actually have. We have the whole gospel. You can walk around with your Bible. You can read your Bible in this culture, on the tube, wherever you are. You can read it. You can open it up. We're in a privileged position to be able to put the lens of God's blessing on our eyes and look at the whole world through the full picture. More than that, we don't only have more than the prophets had. This passage tells us, that we have things into which angels long to look. 
Edmund Clowney, as he comments on this passage, he says it's as if the angels look over the rim of heaven into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and go, yes, look at that. That's where all of creation has always been going, is to the cross and to the resurrection. That is it. That is the heart of a father that finally pays for the sin of the people that he has made. That's it. The cross, the gospel. That's what. I, and what do we do? Well, we're a bit like I am when Stefani takes me to the Tate Britain. I walk in and I'm very excited to get a nice cup of coffee. And then we get into the first hall and I stop at the first work of art and I'm enthralled and it's beautiful. And then the second one is slightly less so. And then the third one, I'm beginning to get bored. And slowly, as we keep on walking, I'm getting not just bored, but I'm now distinctly unmoved, apathetic, uncaring, blasé, couldn't care less. Because I'm just soaked in privilege. What do we do with all this privilege is my third point. What do we do with all this privilege? We have to get our hearts moved. You have to have a Stefani that takes you to the Tate Britain in order to stand in front of some of the pictures and get your heart moved to see what's actually there. You need a Kruger to take you by the hand to the scriptures to, to move your heart so you can see what's actually there. Otherwise, your heart remains cold and stubborn and non disinterested and nonchalant and blasé about all of the blessings that is yours in Christ. That is what Peter is saying. He, he's saying, in the things that have now been announced to you, that's my job, I'm announcing these things to you, through those who preach the good news to you, I'm preaching this to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I am what God has sent to you as a preacher and other preachers that preach the gospel to you. I was sent to you so that you can warm your heart at the privileges that you have in knowing all that you do. You cannot remain unmoved. You cannot, cannot remain disinterested. You, you cannot remain calm and coy and slightly withdrawn about it all. The intention of this is to get your heart warm with the blessings that you have in Christ. So in some measure to meet the trials that you'll face in the world that's around you. This world is full of trouble. But we have been blessed by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we come together in the Lord's name and the Lord's day to come and worship him here. We're doing it because we need our hearts warmed with the gospel so that we can face the trials that we will face in the world around us. And Peter the Apostle is saying, if you want to get that heart of you warmed, come to the preaching of God's word. Come to the preaching of God's word. Come to the preaching both verbally and non-verbally in the sacraments. Come to the preaching of God's word. Uh, come then to prayer as another means of grace to steward the blessings that you have into your heart. And then from there, look at the fellowship of believers. See Christ in one another. Nurture Christ in one another. Warm your hearts with the gospel. That is what the Lord is calling us to do so that we can stand and be sustained. In the end, we will have to be able to say what one, uh, that the audience in Galatians would say in 3.1. Christ was publicly preached to us as crucified. My goal as I stand at the front is to preach Christ in such a way that the room disappears and that the, the hot air disappears and that the masks disappears and we just see Christ crucified on our behalf. 
And we see Christ resurrected, the empty grave. And we go in our heart of hearts, yes, yes, it's done. It's finished. And we get up from here and we say, I can face this world. I know what's real. I know what's true. I can face this world. Let me pray for us. Father, you say in your word, all flesh is like grass. And all his glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. It is this word that we need, Father. The culture that we're in is actively turning against you. And there is suffering ahead for Christians and Christian churches up and down this country. And we need your word to see and to show us, yes, the sufferings of Christ in whom we share. And then his subsequent glories in which we share. You are ours. Nothing can separate us from your love. And, and this world, well, they will do with us what they did with the prophets. It could be that we are despised and ridiculed and mocked, even killed. But we fix our eyes on the glories of Christ in which we will get to share for eternity. Oh, and we ask, Father, that that would fill us with courage. It will fill us with boldness. It would stop us from being, being mealy-mouthed when asked about the God that we worship or His ethics in the way that we live and love and, uh, and, and craft. So please come. Please come through the power of Your Word and show us Your glories more and more. I pray, Father, that this church will be a church of prayer, particularly for the ministry of the Word. We are all dependent on the Word being preached from above by the Holy Spirit so that our hearts will not become cold and disinterested and non-caring to the blessings that we have. Please grab hold of the preacher of this church and pound his heart with the blessings in the gospel that he is able to preach them with conviction. We pray that for James as he preaches this afternoon to us. We pray that for Jonathan as he preaches next Sunday for us. We pray for all the preaching that's going on in this church, Father, that it would bring out the blessings of Christ until we can see our trials through its lens. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.